Good morning, church. Good to be together this morning and look at God's Word. Love this passage here in Luke 5 that was just read for you. We'll be looking at it in a moment. Perhaps you've heard this story. There was this man who was known uh, to be a phenomenal, phenomenal fisherman. When everyone else was catching two, three fish a day, he'd come back with hundreds of fish. Eventually, the local game warden decided to investigate because it just sounded too good to be true. So unannounced, the game warden showed up at the man's door, identified himself, and asked to go fishing with him. The man was agreeable to that, and off they went out to the lake. When they got into the boat, immediately the warden noticed that something didn't seem right. The man didn't have any fishing poles or bait. He didn't have a tackle box. All he had was a small duffel bag. Well, after pulling out to the middle of the lake, the man turned off his motor of the boat and, and reached into the duffel bag and pulled out what looked like a stick of dynamite. And before the warden could say anything, he lit the stick of dynamite and threw it into the water exploded with a mighty roar, and stunned fish by the dozens floated to the surface. The man calmly started his boat and began gathering all the fish in his net. The warden said, now see here, this is highly illegal. But the man just laughed and steered the boat to another part of the lake. He did the same thing with a second stick of dynamite. He lit it, threw it out, and sure enough, fish floated to the surface. Well, by this time, the warden had seen enough. He said, Mr., you've broken so many laws, I can't even begin to count them. This, this is a, a legal possession of dynamite, a legal detonation of, of dangerous material. You're disturbing the peace and, and about half dozen other misdemeanors and felonies. Well, the warden was talking and going on and on. The man calmly lit another stick of dynamite and handed it to the game warden. Game warden holding this lit stick of dynamite in his hand. And the man says to him, are you going to keep talking? Are you going to fish? <laughs> what a dilemma. That really, as I thought about this, is really our problem when it comes to reaching our community for Christ. Too much talking, not enough fishing. And so we read books on witnessing and we go to seminars and, and we even take training courses on how to reach our neighbor for Christ. And we listen to sermons and podcasts and on and on it goes. We may even have a tackle box full of memorized scriptures to use, clever arguments, and perhaps some very old tracks. Yes, we're good at talking about fishing. After all, didn't Jesus say, follow me and we'll talk about fishing for men? All right, with that, that introduces our passage this morning, found in Luke chapter 5, and you'll know right off, that's not what it says at all. But it is a fish story. It's a fish story. But unlike fish stories often told of the fish being this big that got away, or where no one else was around to see it, or the fish that gets bigger and bigger with each telling of it, what we have here in Luke 5 is a true fish story. And as we'll see, it has very little to do with fishing with rod and reel. Well, if you're not there, I urge you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, you notice my title this morning, A Fish Story for Real. It's meant to be kind of a pun, and someone in first service said to me, yeah, yeah that was a pun, right? I caught it. Okay, so they added to my pun. Someone always has to up me. 
We are three weeks in this passage here. We're three weeks now from finishing our sermon series on follow me. And I remind you that the driver for choosing this sermon series is our mission statement that says we exist to make disciples who make disciples. And as I've said, it takes one to make one. And it takes a disciple to make a disciple. And so we've been looking at uh, some marks, some characteristics, some traits of true disciples, true followers of Jesus. And so the main thought for this morning, quite simple. To follow is to fish. To follow is to fish. And of course, by that, you know that the fishing is something of greater consequence than the number of fish we catch out on the lake. And that's where we begin this morning, on a lake. The lake of Gennesaret, or commonly known as the Sea of Galilee. But it's a freshwater lake. It's a freshwater lake. And my first heading for this morning is caught nothing. Caught nothing. Luke chapter 5 verse 1, follow along with me. One day as Jesus was staying by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him, listening to the word of God, he, Jesus, saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. Now, why are they washing their nets? Because they were done fishing. It was very typical uh, at the end of your fishing time to clean your nets uh, and be ready for the next time out. But these guys came back, not caught nothing, and they were done. They were done. They're they're calling it quits. Now remember, fishing for them wasn't some hobby, something to do to unwind, relax on your day off. They fished for a living. They had been out all night fishing for the best time to catch fish was at night. It was at night that the fish were commonly uh, be closer to the surface and easier to catch with their nets. Well, things aren't going well for the fishermen. They caught nothing. Jesus shows up as they're washing their nets, battling defeats, giving up. Do you know know that feeling? I mean, does washing your nets kind of describe you right now? You you feel like giving up. You you, you came into this room this morning. Perhaps you're just exhausted. You've tried everything to make things better and nothing seems to work. And you say, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm just going to wash my nets, call it quits, move on. We'll enter Jesus. Now, Jesus here is right there, ready to teach the people, but to teach the disciples a very important lesson. Jesus, at this time, news is spreading uh, about him. A number of people coming to listen to him is exploding. Jesus spent a lot of time around the lake, and he's teaching the people there. In verse 3, it tells us Jesus got into one of the boats and asked Simon, this is Peter, Simon to put out a little from shore. And Jesus did this so as he spoke from the boat, there would be this natural amphitheater effect. The sound would be projected as the people were pressed along the shore. There was this natural sloping as the shoreline would go up from the water, kind of like an amphitheater. 
And so the voice of Jesus, by being on the boat there and projecting this way, would be amplified as it would bounce off the water and heard by those on shore. They didn't have a mic system in that day. And when he finished speaking, verse 4 tells us, he said to Simon, remember this is Peter, he says to Simon, put out into deep water, let down the nets for a catch. And Peter had to be thinking, no one does that. No, no one puts out into deep water during the day to catch fish. Peter is an expert on fishing. He knows where and when to catch the most fish. Jesus here is on Peter's turf. Peter knows lakes. He knows the best time to fish. And he might have been thinking, in all due respect here, Jesus, you're a carpenter's son, I'm a fisherman. He might have even been ready to say, you know, Jesus, tell you what, you stick to preaching, I'll do the fishing. This makes no sense. What Jesus asked him to do makes absolutely no sense. And besides, they're all exhausted. It says that in verse 5. Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. So Peter really here, Simon, is, is just asking Jesus to give a reason for doing this. Because what Jesus is asking him to do here is illogical and unreasonable. But notice the end of verse 5. But because you say so, I will let down my nets because you say so. Simon has no good reason, logical reason to do this. The only reason is because you say so. In church, that is enough reason to do it. Simon didn't agree. He says so. But he could still obey. Here's a principle for us right here. There are times... There are times when we may not agree with what God says, but we can still obey. There are times we may not agree with what God says, but we can still obey. Neil, um, Neil, Martin. Neil Martin is a member of the British Parliament, and once he was giving a group of his constituents a guided tour of the Houses of Parliament. And during this tour, the group happened to meet uh, Lord uh, Hailsham, wearing all the regalia of his office as he was Lord Chancellor. So Lord Hailsham recognized Neil Martin among the group, and he cried out to him, Neil, he said. And the entire group of visitors promptly fell to their knees. <laughs> they all felt, oh, we, I don't care, we can't ask any questions here. He said, Neil, we're going to kneel. That's what they did. See, when God says to do it, kneel in submission to him. You know, Lord, I know what I'm supposed to do here. <laughs> I know I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. It doesn't make sense. Because you say so, I will do it. I know, Lord, I'm supposed to forgive that person again and again and again. Seventy times seven, it says. Doesn't seem right. But because you say so, I will do it. What you're asking me to do, Lord, it seems unreasonable. It seems illogical to how I've been programmed by the world. But because you say it in your word to do it, I'll do it. See, 
even when everything inside of us wants a reason, do it anyway. And parents, you understand that from your children, right? They, they want to know why they can't do something. What's the reason I can't go? What's the reason I can't have this thing I want? What's the reason for that strict rule? And that isn't necessarily wrong for them to want a reason. There are times when we can give them a reasonable answer. But there are times we must say, you have to trust me on this and do as I say. You have to trust me. And that's what Peter does here. Because you say so, I will do it. Can you think of a time, maybe recently, when you simply had to do it because Jesus said so? Maybe, maybe you're in a situation right now that you really don't agree, but because God says so, that's going to have to be enough? What right now for you is your, but because you say so, I will do it. What is that for you? Where might you be disagreeing with God, but you can still obey? There was a student who went up to a professor with a question about an answer that he marked wrong on her exam. And she said to him, sir, you marked this wrong when I gave the answer right out of the book assigned for this class. You assigned this right out of the page of this book. Where does it say that? The professor asked. Student showed him the exact wording on the exact page. Professor took the book, ripped out that page, and said, any other questions? <laughs> and I wonder, do we do that? I don't really like what God says here. I'm going to rip it right out. See, do we come to God for his advice or to do what he says to do? See, when we pick and choose to what God tells us to do in his word, we're really just coming to God. Just give me some advice on this. That's really all I want. Well, they, they, they caught nothing. Now we go to the miracle of a catch here. Look with me at verse 6. When they had done so, they now went out. Deep water, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. What happens here cannot be explained along the usual methods of fishing techniques. See, there exists in life, doesn't there? Doesn't it? This contrast between what we can do, our human potential and reality, and what God can do that cannot be explained in natural terms. They did what Jesus had told them to do, and they catch this multitude of fish. And you go, well, you know what? If I obey and I see those kind of results, I'll continue to obey. Always work that way, does it? Sometimes we do the right thing and it's even a hard thing and things get worse, not better. It's kind of challenging to say, I'm going to keep doing this. But here's the thing. Just as Jesus knows where the fish are, he knows exactly what is going on in your life right now. Jesus says elsewhere that God knows every step of every sparrow. So while you wait for God to act in your situation, remember, there's nothing God doesn't know. There isn't anything he doesn't know about your situation right now. And you may wish that he performed this miracle in your life to, to kind of get things right side up. Be assured, God isn't searching for more information so he can find a solution to your problem. He knows the outcome. You may not at this time, but in time you will. 
put out in deep water because he told you to trust him. And then he will take care of what comes next. And when God decides to move a tail of a fish to where he wants it to be, he can do that with anything at any time. One thing's for sure. When that happens, there'll be no doubt that God did it. See, it's one thing to know where the fish are. It's another matter to have the power to gather them there. And see, but when God does that in your life and you're waiting for some outcome and he does it, every result will be absolute shock and awe. Look at verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. Get away. I'm a sinful man. Peter knew what just had happened had no human explanation. Peter knew fishing. And what he just experienced was not fishing. Now, by the way, this is not, sometimes it's portrayed this way, but it's not accurate. This is not Peter's first encounter with Jesus. It's not. Chronologically, it's not. Peter met Jesus a few other times, and one time Jesus was even in Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law. Jesus had already renamed Simon with the name Peter, which means rock. That's already happened. But Peter, Jesus here takes Peter to another level. Now, as an aside, up to this point in Luke's gospel, Luke refers to Peter as Simon. Simon. Even in this narrative right here in the first seven verses, Simon, Simon, Simon. It's only right here in verse 8 that changes to Simon Peter. I don't know. Maybe that's something. Because maybe it means now by using Peter, this is in Peter's life, it's where this transformation is taking place in his life that hadn't before. See, whoever Peter thought Jesus was when they first met, and whoever Peter thought Jesus was when he healed his mother-in-law, and whoever Peter thought Jesus was when he was teaching from the boat, Peter now knows he's in the very presence of holiness. Peter recognizes his sinfulness. He's crushed because he knows if he can see a holy God, then God can see him. He's aware of his sin. It's terrifying. It's intimidating. So he says to Jesus here, note this. We're going to come back to this later. Go away. Go away. Depart from me. The self-consciousness, the shame, the guilt, the sense of unworthiness, it's all too much, and he wants to run from it. And all the others around him had the same reaction. They were all shaken to the core. Look at verse 9. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Now, the sequel to this miracle was the more important matter. This is very little to do with fish, except to display the power and majesty of God. And that's no small thing. But it's what comes next is the turning point in this fish story. Think about this. They caught so many fish. They never caught this much fish in their lives. Things are going great for them. Business would be booming after this day of fishing. And what does Jesus then say? 
Quit the fishing business. <laughs> I'm not doing that anymore. Now, the best time in their life, things are going great for them. I mean, you would have thought the best time to call these guys to follow him might be back at the beginning when they were washing their nets. They were defeated. Life wasn't turning out so good. Things, they were kind of done with the secular work. That might have been fine. Enter in. You got, I got something for you. Not when it happened. You know, often that's the case, right? Oh, my, my business went bankrupt. My life's falling apart. I lost my job. Life's going terrible. I'm tired and exhausted of trying to make ends meet. You know what? I might as well serve the Lord. Nothing else is working. I might as well go into the ministry. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. God gets my attention. All right, now I'll follow you. I mean, it can happen that way. I mean, it certainly did in my case. But that isn't what happened here. I don't want us to miss this. These guys are at their peak. They might have even thought, you know what? If we can keep this Jesus close to us, he can do this all the time for us. This would be great. This is a win-win. Imagine what this would do for our business. We keep fishing. He pulls off these miracles. We make a lot of money. Many think that way. They really do. They think, you know, if they follow Jesus for what, they, what he will do for them, now he's got to bless my business. I keep him close here. Yeah, he's got to make me rich here. He's got to keep me healthy. He's got to give me a better job. We can follow Jesus for the good stuff he's supposed to give us rather than love and follow him for his sake. Tim Keller illustrates it this way. He says, imagine being in a situation where you're dating somebody and you seem to be falling in love. As part of getting to know one another, you let it be known that when you get married, you're going to come into a significant trust fund. The person you're falling in love with says, oh, really? Well, you know what? It doesn't make any difference to me whether you're rich or poor. I love you for who you are. Okay, Tim Keller continues, suppose just before the wedding, you learned that you weren't going to get that trust fund after you're married. And when you communicated that to your spouse-to-be, he or she uh, got so disappointed, they call off the wedding. How are you feeling now? What would that tell you about that person's love for you? You'd start to think, you know, you never loved me for, for me. You're using me. You loved me because I was going to get you somewhere or get you something. You didn't love me. You were just using me. Are we treating God like a trust fund for what he can do for us? Listen, God calls us to a much greater cause than that. Third heading this morning, catch people. Catch people. Middle of verse 10. Follow along. Middle of verse 10. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Now, catch men in the original is in the continuous sense, which suggests this is going to be habitual practice. They're going to be catching people, not just one time. They're going to continually do this. And it says, so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Folks, this was the greatest catch they had ever seen in their lives. And they left it all behind. They left everything. 
What is the only explanation for their leaving everything and following Jesus? The compelling cause. The compelling cause. They left all that fish behind and went on to something more important. Catching people. Now, did Peter, James, and John, and the others here understand what awaited them on their journey? Probably not. Were they scared? Probably. And with straightforward language, Jesus draws them into a cause greater than a life consumed with piles of smelly fish to touch lives with the transforming power of the grace of Jesus. They were signing on to join Jesus in a greater cause. And Jesus is saying here, you think that catch of fish was great? I'm going to do that with people. And it happened for Peter. His first sermon he ever gave on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. At the end of that passage, it tells us that 3,000 people came to know the Lord. Wow. That's what's going on here. Taking Peter to another level. But you know what? There was still another work Jesus had to do in Peter's life. And so I want to I go briefly here to another fish story, another true fish story at the end of Jesus' ministry here on earth. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21. You can leave your place there in Luke 5. We're going to end here with John 21. And so look with me at John 21. Now Luke 5 and John 21, they serve as bookends. John 21, for context here, is after Jesus has been crucified and was resurrected. All right? What took place just prior to Jesus' trial and crucifixion? Well, one thing was Peter's denial of Jesus. I don't know the man. Peter publicly claimed three times, as Jesus predicted. You will deny me three times, Jesus said, before the rooster crows. And now, never, never, Lord. Everybody else might. I will not. Never me, Lord. Uh-uh. But Peter did. He did deny Jesus. He wasn't there at the most critical time in Jesus' life. He denied him and felt terrible after he did, Scripture tells us. He wept bitterly. His sorrow was a godly sorrow. I can just imagine he'd love the chance again to make things right with Jesus. After all, he let Jesus down. He failed. He buckled under the pressure. He denied knowing Jesus. John 21. It's another fish story. Same problem. No fish. Same miracle. Miraculous catch of fish. Except in this case, someone took the time to count the fish. 153 large fish were caught, it says. Folks, these aren't legends. These are eyewitness accounts. 153. So Luke 5, John 21, same problem, same miracle, but I want you to notice that it wasn't the same reaction from Peter. I mean, it was a strong reaction, but there's a difference here from Luke 5 to John 21. You'll notice it, I'm sure. John 21, middle of verse 7. It says, as soon as Peter heard him, John say, it is the Lord. Peter wrapped his outer garment around him, jumped into the water. He swims to Jesus. All right, Luke 5, 
with the miracle of the fish, Peter does what? He says, depart from me. Get away from me. I need to run from you, Jesus. This time, he swims as fast as he can in Jesus' direction. Peter doesn't want to run from Jesus, but to Jesus. And we don't have time to get into it, but what did he discover when he met up with Jesus? Not only Jesus, you know, cooking them breakfast, but, but forgiveness, acceptance, restoration. What changed for Peter? Why a different reaction? Not away from me, I'm going to run to you. Now, I don't want to stretch this too much, but I believe it's this. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, him crucified, raised from the dead after three days, that invites us to swim toward him when we have blown it. We see that sin in our life, swim toward him, not get away from me. And you may be here this morning, you, you feel like you've let Jesus down. You feel like, man, I have failed him miserably. And people say, I can't go to church because of my failure. I messed up so badly this past week, I need to stay away. No, 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 no. That's the time to draw near to him, swim to him, run to him. See, when you're first aware of your sin before a holy God, you say, go away. I'm ruined. But that recognition of your sin should drive you to the gospel, to Jesus. Because of the gospel, that sin before a holy God that makes us cringe is also the reason we need him and his forgiveness. You see, when we are gripped by the gospel, we embrace what Jesus did for us. It's really what I'm praying for, for me and for you around this. When we're gripped by the gospel, we embrace what Jesus did for us. We don't ask, why would we leave everything to follow him? But rather, why wouldn't we? It's a proper understanding of the gospel that's the greatest motivator for catching people. It isn't to be seen as this, you know, you put a stick of dynamite in your hands and you say, you have no choice, you better go witness. No, that isn't it at all. We've missed it. We get to, we get to introduce others to this living hope, Jesus Christ, and the great news of forgiveness into life eternal. We get to. I mean, is there a greater cause than catching people? Now, catching people strongly suggests that all of our decisions in life revolve around this cause. Everything we value, our money, our career, our recreation, our friends, our possessions, our advancements. Why are they all there? Why do we have them? All for his cause. Everything we hold is a means to reflect who Jesus is to those who need him. And each one of us in this room has to kind of work that out as to what it means to catch people. What that looks like in your life. This call to discipleship. It's not the same for everyone. I mean, it may mean that you give up your day off to help a widow in need. It may mean you serve and help out as a volunteer at a school event. It may mean you speak in a positive way when others around you are complaining. I don't know what it means for you. But fishers of men see our neighbors as the harvest. To see that boss not merely as, as a means of advancement or, or, or pay raises, but one who might see the reality of Jesus living in me. Whatever it may mean personally for you, it at least means this. We view everything within our control as opportunities to impact our world for Christ. It means that wherever you are, 
It's seen as an opening to show others who Jesus is. As someone put it, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> right? Wherever God has placed you, be Christ. Paul Borthwick, he's a writer and speaker on global missions. He shares a story to remind us of how wherever God has us, he wants to use us. It's a personal story for him. He, he says he stopped into McDonald's at Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he noticed this young man behind the counter that he recognized from his young adult ministry at church, and his name was Peter. He says, uh, you know, Peter had just graduated from Harvard University with a master's degree. So Borthwick went up to the counter. He's on the other side of the counter, this, this Peter. And, and Borthwick greeted him, and they managed to, to break him free for some coffee together. When he got coffee together, Borthwick says this, and he asked him, what are you doing here, I asked, knowing that Harvard master's degree students don't usually aspire to work the counter at McDonald's. Well, Peter explained, I graduated in Maine, excuse me, in May, but I went four months without finding a job. So I said to myself, I need some income to pay bills. So this is where I've ended up, at least for now. Borthwick said, sorry to hear that. That must be hard. But Peter cut him off. And Peter said, no, 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 no. Don't be sorry. God has me here. This place he says it's given me awesome opportunities to share my faith. I'm on shift that includes a Buddhist guy from Sri Lanka, a Muslim man from Lebanon, a Hindu lady from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome, he said. I get to be a global missionary to my co-workers <laughs> while asking, would you like fries with that? <laughs> you see, Peter... Peter found himself in a setting he never would have chosen as part of his long-term plan, but his mindset of living as one who catches people shaped the way he looked at his circumstances and at the people around him. To follow Jesus is to fish, to be fishers of people, to catch people. Listen, wherever God has you, he wants to use you there. Wherever he has you. It might not be your long-term plan, but it's where you are now. He wants to use you there. Let's pray. God, thank you for this true account. And one day in Peter's life, one day in which you turned his world upside down. And yes, there's a, there's a focus to be there on the, on, the, on the miraculous, but to just focus on the miraculous misses the point. It seems that you use that to show us what a difference we could make to hundreds, thousands of people as you work in and through us. And God, I just pray each one of us in this room, work that out as to what it looks like in our lives. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.